I was tired of Stanford. We've been getting together too long. Like a worn out recording of a Jeff Jarrett song. So while Vince lay there sleeping, I read the Observer in bed. And in the personal columns, there was a bullet I read. If you hate her, Rakaran is. And listening to Mike today. If you're not into Hogan. And you hate Bobby the Brain. If you like Booker T at midnight. And squashing cruises like grapes. Then I got the job that you're looking for. Right to Ted and escape. Didn't think about my ratings. I don't even know what they mean. But me and my old ratings had fallen into that same old dull routine. So I wrote to the Observer, dedicated it to Ted. Though I'm no Lanny Poffo, I'll suck my in bed. Yes, I ate her, Rakaran is. I fucking hate Mike Tenay. I created Gangrel's Brood and pushed Stefan Shane. I gotta meet you by tomorrow noon to cut through Patterson's red tape at this place called the Garden where I'll plan my escape. So I waited with high hopes as Ted walked into place. I knew that stash in an instant I knew the fat on his face. I said, Ted, this is kind of shady. He said, I want a coup. Then we laughed for a moment. And I said, I never knew that you ate her is and that prick Mike today. You want to give me a promotion and then sell the company to Shane? Yeah, I'll push Booker T at midnight. And then I'll bury Dallas Page. I'm the rioter you're looking for. To make sure WCW dies. Because WCW must die. North-South Connection Podcast Network. Welcome back to the first Sunday edition of WCW Must Die. My name is Johnny C, and I am your host for this evening's festivities. Although I guess I shouldn't marginalize the time of day that you are actually listening to this. So take when I said this evening and uh, scrub it out and put in where uh, wh- whatever time it is where you are. Maybe it's dusk. Welcome to WCW Must Die. Thanks for joining us this dusk. I even re-recorded it for you just in case you needed the sound bite. But uh, thanks for joining us here. Uh, for this very special episode of WCW Must Die. Uh, not only is it special because it's our first foray into Sunday-based entertainment, or SBE, as my uh, company's KPIs indicate as such. No, that's bullshit. My company and key performance indicators don't have anything to do with it, but I figured if I called it SBE, it would make it sound more important. It's like what most American companies do for their workers. It's like, all right, everyone, settle down. It's been a great fiscal year. 
Our KPIs are up 22.86%. ROE on IVEs are about 22 cents per gallon. And, uh, you know, we're going to cut your PTO time. Sorry. Oh, no. You know, anarchy, anarchy. This is why they don't allow me to host shows by myself, folks. Oh, no, though. What also makes this show very special is that I am going to be single-handedly hosting this episode of WCW Must Die. Um, it's my own fault, really. Uh, schedules have just been so hectic over this last month between uh, WrestleMania and uh, my doctor ordering me to uh, stay on bed rest. Because he listened to my last episode of WC, or excuse me, of Johnny C and the Multiverse of Fabulousness and said, bro, you just need to take a step back and breathe. So that's what I'm doing. I'm taking a step back and I'm breathing. But all nonsense trying to get you guys to pop and laugh before I actually start talking about this unique WCW wrestling program aside. Uh, I do thank you for joining me and I will try to keep the information uh, concise and concrete but throw in little spices of humor for the audience whenever necessary. So we're following up from our last episode of Thunder, uh, where Ian and Steve, star-crossed lovers that they are, took their rivalry, question mark, to new heights uh, during an ambulance match. And uh, also don't forget that Ian tried to eat Crowy, uh, Sting's pet crow. But it's May 15th in the year of our Lord, 2000. And we're in the Mississippi Coast Coliseum, home of one of the Beach Blast pay-per-views, one with Cactus Jack and Sting. Uh, I'm going to say 92 off the top of my head, and I'm not going to look it up. In Biloxi, or Biloxi, depending on who you ask, Mississippi. M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I. I had to learn that when I was a kid, like I think most people do, but I don't know why I decided to sing it like that, like I'm fucking losing my brain. So... We start off with uh, a, a musical interlude that recaps the events of a Sting and Ian, or, or, you know, Sting and Vampiro, if you really want to be a dick and get technical. All the shenanigans and bullshit that they've been through over the last couple months, including a rare glimpse at the pre-Russo and Bischoff continuity, uh, where they first became tag team partners and or buddies, which is really crazy for them to acknowledge this type of continuity. Uh, you don't see this much in like movies or comics, like especially in a movie, like if you recast a character in between sequels, like if they had to show a flashback to Batman Begins in the Dark Knight and you'd have Maggie Gyllenhaal doing stuff that Katie Holmes did, that's just kind of awkward. But here we are in this continuity that's been erased by a crisis of infinite bookers, uh, Russo and Bischoff, that is, uh, being acknowledged. So I, I found that interesting. Uh, but not much more of note when it comes to the video package. Oh, except that it was set to some fake-ass Matrix music. Fuckers trying to capitalize on the Matrix, uh, you know, while it's still hot, probably just released on DVD. Man, that Matrix DVD. That was like the reason to buy a DVD player. I must have worn that shit out. Uh, but we do get entrances for our opening match right off the bat. So, hey, I'm impressed. They're getting us right into the action. I'm also impressed that there's also a cage surrounding the ring already. So looks like we're going to get off to something hot. And it's billed as a House of Pain match. Now, at this moment in the recording of the show, I don't know what a House of Pain match is. 
because they haven't explained it to me yet. But, uh, you know, as the match proper gets started, we'll start to see what a clusterfuck this really is. But Sting and Vampiro make their entrances. They eventually get into the cage, and the bell rings. Now, here's where I normally would do the recap of the match, starting with who wins, and uh, then go through what uh, I noticed in the match. It follows our old mantra of we here, meaning the hosts, will tell you what happened during this show, but then we will actually tell you what happened that's uh, important, hilarious, worth a damn, or anything like that. But before I get started with critiquing the match itself, I'd like to play a little game. Making its first appearance on WCW Must Die, let's play Fun with Closed Captions! 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 So... I had the closed captions on after speaking with a uh, former guest host, Jennifer Smith, from the Jenny Position podcast found here uh, on North South Connection Podcast Network, as well as the Jenny Position. Cheap plug for her. She deserves it, though. Um, but, you know, we had mentioned in the episode that we hosted together that, uh, you know, she likes to do the closed captions on 24-7, regardless of what she's watching. I usually do that just for, like, movies TV shows and stuff like that, because I find the lag a bit disheartening when it comes to a professional wrestling show, which is really weird because it's all pre-programmed now, and you got to assume that the closed captioners, like, it's not like it's, those files should be on the Peacock server, right? So why can't it just display the exact text that's being spoken in the exact moment that it's being spoken, and then remove it and keep up at a live pace? Like, I get if it's a live sporting event. And Marv Albert's about to say, you know, the, the leading scorer for the Cleveland Cavaliers just bit a prostitute. And he'd say, like, the leading scorer for the Cleveland Cavaliers just bit a prostitute. But the closed captioner doesn't know that they're going to say that because they're, they're typing it out live. So what the fuck? We're on a 22-year tape delay. Just do a better job with the closed captions. But... I guess I, I, I don't mean that, because if they did do a good job, we couldn't play fun with closed captions, 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 captions. So, as they're making, as Vampiro and pronouns, pal, as Vampiro and Sting are making their entrances, uh, this is an exact quote from Scott Hudson and his closed captioning partner. After what went down last Wednesday night on Thunder, Vampiro at the wheel of the amulet. The fallen form of Sting in sight. Mike Awesome atop the amulet. So, the closed captioner either doesn't understand pro wrestling commentary, or, and this is my theory, they're just a huge metal fan. And they wanted to make whatever he was saying sound like they were like metal lyrics, like, After last Wednesday night, Vampiro, at the wheel of the amulet, the fallen form of Sting inside, my custom, at the amulet. That was some Slipknot for you guys, if you like Slipknot. Um, but it is fucking weird. But it's also weirdly fitting of like the Vampiro and Sting rivalry, if you want to believe that they have like mystical paint based powers. That like, Vampiro would have some sort of magic amulet, <laughs> and he would pray to this amulet for the fallen form of Sting, meaning, like, Sting's fallen, like his death, maybe? Or maybe they're just, you know, previewing what's going to eventually happen at the Great American Bash in Sting's fallen form. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen that. But I don't know how Mike Awesome gets atop 
this mystical amulet or how that fits in. Also, after this, if that wasn't enough, during Sting's entrance, <laughs> Tony Schiavone is talking. And for 8.6 seconds, because I timed it, it just says, indistinct. <laughs> I'm, so I'm sorry, I'm thinking about when I was sitting there timing it and trying to figure out what he was saying. And it's just, it, I got a picture of the, the closed capture, like trying to type it out. And then they just erase like 17 lines of bullshit. They just went indistinct in parentheses. <laughs> Man, I want to hang out with that person just to see where their mindset was. But uh, to get serious about it, let's talk about the match. Sting defeats Ian in a House of Pain match via S&M. Right away, as the match starts, Vampiro is in the ring because he came down first, and Sting comes down to the ring because he comes down second. And they... Sting starts climbing the top of the to the top of the cage, but as he gets about halfway, Ian runs toward him and starts climbing the cage too, and they pause, and they just kind of stare at each other and like kind of like motion their faces at one another. But the cage, you know, the fencing is actually blocking them, and it reminded me of that recently released deleted scene from The Batman, where Pattinson talks to the new Joker, or, uh, God, what's his name? Fuck, Barry Keegan? Keegan? I, I, I think he has, like, a very hard Irish last name. Uh, I don't think the letters are pronounced the way they are in um, American English. So I don't want to botch your name, Barry. Uh, but your performance as the Joker is fucking awesome, and I hope it gets uh, to see, you know, more chances moving forward. But the one thing about that scene that's interesting is that they're talking behind the plexiglass wall at Arkham Asylum, and there's some real sexual tension uh, that they're bringing together. And I don't care if that bugs you. I'm telling you it's there. Um, I'm not saying that the Robert Pattinson version of the Batman character wants to fuck the Joker. I am saying that there's tension. And because of the way the Joker acts, it comes off as overtly sexual. And it also comes off as kind of sexual because Batman doesn't really deny the Joker's sort of advances. He just kind of stands there and takes it. So it's kind of like, well, why doesn't why isn't he getting pissed or like trying to punch the glass and be like, what did you do? Or what have you done? I can't. Fuck, I messed it up. But OK, whatever. But I got that. Maybe it's because I watched that deleted scene like right before I watched the scene like the same day, I think. But fuck, man, there is some 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 dick heat coming off of Vampiro and Sting. And I'm here for it um, because it makes me also feel like not only am I appreciating how this year 2000 wrestling program, which would, you know, chart very red is actually getting some like you know same sex uh you know vibes and i think that's fucking progressive i love it um sting gets to the top of the cage after this fucking face fuck scenario and he beats the cage open with a bat it's a pretty cool visual what's not a pretty cool visual is that since the camera has to you know go upwards you can see that there are so many empty seats in this arena. It's kind of sad. And from a wrestling point of view, which is what this podcast is about, you need fans to make money. You need money to run your wrestling organization. You better do something to fix it. Or who knows, by March of next year, you might go out of business. Um, as Sting is beating the bat against the cage, before the right before the cage rips, Scott Hudson goes, Good night! He's beating a hole in the top of the cage! 
And not only did he fucking say goodnight already, but he's just stating the obvious. He's he's pulling a Tanay, and it bugs me. But what doesn't bug me is that as soon as the cage collapses, or the roof part collapses, Tony Schiavone goes, That's what he did! <laughs> I just should have put indistinct, because that's a pretty shitty line. Oh, man. But they're in the ring, and they're like, I don't know, it's kind of weird. They're like juking and jiving each other. It looks like they're breakdance fighting from Zoolander. It's kind of digging that. Um, Sting kind of jumps on like a little cable that's in the ring as well, which is kind of cool. It's like a rope. And he does some like little kicks like he's goddamn Elaine Bennis. So I was here for that. During this portion, they, the announcers tell us the rules of the match. Each man has a key. All right. On one side of the cage, there are shackles for an individual's wrists. You win the match by shackling your opponent to the side of the cage via the handcuffs, and then you, and this is a quote, have your way with him with the baseball bat. Again, fucking bringing to the forefront some of that sexual tension, and I'm here for it. Vampiro does a sweet Texas Tornado discus kick, uh, which means he must have been trained in Texquando instead of Rexquando, if anybody knows Rexquando. Uh, but Vampiro is on offense for a minute or two here, and he's just boring to watch. It's just super boring. He does nothing. Punches and kicks. We get our first top of the hour alert. Top of the hour, Tony. Russo and David Flair are going to show us footage of the other side of Ric Flair. Stay tuned for that, fans. It's a fucking doozy. So Vamp does some shin kicks, some shin-based offense. And then Sting goes down from this shin-based offense, which I guess makes sense. You know, it hurts to buckle the buckle the shins. Vampiro dives his knee right into the cock of the stinger. Again, you know, sexual tension. But then he kind of stands up and he does this really weird taunt. It's like the old Ultron, I have no strings. Like, if you're familiar with the Age of Ultron, where he's like... There are no strings on me. You're all puppets dangling on strings. Oh, I had to kill the other guy. He was a bad guy. You know, that whole thing. Um, I got to talk about Ultron. Oh, but then he picks up Sting, and he goes for an Irish whip. Halfway through the Irish whip, he cancels the Irish whip. So he must have pressed B or something. And then he bounces off the ropes himself. And when he gets to Sting, that's usually in a, re a wrestling contest when you, like, I don't know, knee your opponent or do a swinging neckbreaker or something. But when he touches Sting after his own bouncing off the ropes, he Irish whips Sting into the ropes. So, fans, I present to you, momentum gain or botch? What was Vampiro really going for? Another Texquando spinning kick? He goes up to the top rope. Vampiro does. Pronouns, pal. Ian attempts the whoopee cushion, and Sting counters it with a powerbomb. Not so much by catching him and powerbombing him, but by kind of sticking his chest out and, you know, stepping backwards slightly, and, like, Vampiro sells in a powerbomb position. It's like he powerbombs himself, and I love it. It's fantastic. At this point, Hudson's getting excited because he's excited to see the winner of the match use the bat against their opponent meaning that Sting and Ian aren't the only ones sexually charged by this cage action. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sting grabs Ian and starts grating his face across the cage. Madden compares it to, uh, you know, shredding a head of lettuce that has dreadlocks. It's awful, but I laughed. Uh, Ian gets shackled. Sting, 
cranks up, locks him in place, the bell rings, and like I said, via SNM, Sting is your winner. Now, before I give you my rankings, I feel like you can't rank a House of Pain match until you get to the aftermatch bat have your way with him shenanigans, because that's the that's the big draw, right? Obviously. So Sting goes to grab the bat. Oh wait, no, he doesn't go to grab the bat. He gives a singer splash to Ian, and Ian bounces against the cage. This is pretty cool. Another stinger splash bounces against the cage. Pretty cool. Then he goes to grab the bat. No, he doesn't actually grab the bat. He does another one of those hanging cable kicks. And Ian bounces against the cage. But finally, he walks over to the door to grab the bat. But he just walks out the door, goes to the ramp, and poses. Vampiro is in the ring, uh, you know, tack or uh, shackled to the cage. And he's, like, doing the, like, deranged smile thing. So I think he just came. All right, I think he got off from this, and I'm here for it, like I said. But they're doing it, and they're obviously the wrestling angle is, oh, Vampiro loves this pain. This is exactly what he wanted, Tony. And it doesn't make any goddamn sense, because there was no baseball bat beating. None of that shit that was promised ever came to fruition. The lights turn out, Sting goes back to the ring, the cage is slightly elevated, and Ian is gone, and everyone's like, where'd he go? How did he escape the binds? And it's like, motherfucker, you told us he had a key when you were explaining the rules. Each competitor has a key. Now, normally you would think I'd give this match five stars, obviously, because it's fucking ridiculous. But I just wasn't having as much fun with it as I was some of the other dumb shit that WCW does. So I'm giving it three ruined orgasms because Ian got off. I did not. Cut to the back. Brian Adams, uh, but no, not Brian Adams. Which one's Adam Bomb? Brian Clark, excuse me, is looking for something in his trunk. I don't know if he dropped his fucking bag of weed or whatever. I can attest uh, from my younger years that that is no fun. But uh, the franchise comes up and slams the, hood, the, the trunk hood down on his head and then punches him twice, yells something, and then walks away. And Brian uh, Clark looks mildly irritated. What the fuck? Why even cut to the back for a beatdown if it's not even a beatdown? Because as they're like, fans, we'll be right back! And fading to black, Clark guy's kind of shaking it off like, oh, that wasn't very nice. And, oh! <laughs> I don't know. So that's the first segment of Solo Johnny C hosting. Let's move on to the next one. We're in the back with a uh, huge erection and the Misfits in action. Basically, this is a segment where the Misfits all get their name. Uh, Chavo Guerrero Jr. becomes Lieutenant Loco. Uh, Lash LaRue has already been dubbed Corporal Cajun, and Van Hammer becomes Private Stash. This is also the introduction of Major Guns. There's jokes about progressives and things like that. It's really not funny. I don't even know it's funny in 2000, and I'm just not a fan of Tylene Buck, so nothing much really of note here. Uh, we then go back into the arena for Crowder. Uh, Brian Adams immediately gets on the stick and, like, starts verbally tearing down the franchise for having the audacity to attack Brian Clark because he got to the arena late just because he missed the 420 out of Florida or whatever. I don't know why I sound like Hulk Hogan, brother. But he tries to make a lame 420 joke, and even me thinks it's stupid, so it must have been really bad. And the franchise comes out to basically retort back, and there's this fantastic moment where he says, Hey, all you pieces of shit! And, of course, the shit is bleeped out. He's like, all you pieces of shit and Biloxi shut up while I talk to these two boys. And they cut to this mom and daughter in the crowd, and the mom has her mouth agape, like, 
And they're in Mississippi, so I imagine it sounded like, oh, my God, y'all, he said that about all of us, but also my daughter, because she, like, looks at her daughter like, oh, no, did she hear that that man called her a piece of shit? And then she kind of looks back like, oh, maybe she didn't hear about my girl. He called her a piece of shit, y'all. I didn't come to this wrestling show to be called a piece of shit, y'all. I don't know. I thought it was pretty awesome. <laughs> and so the franchise continues his charged words by letting Chronic know that regardless of a 30-day suspension of my tag team partner for uh, unruly behavior, which is just a ridiculous way to let the audience know that Buff isn't going to be here for 30 days because he was suspended for unprofessional conduct. I feel like suspending someone for unprofessional conduct is totally okay. I mean, it's something you got to do if your talent misbehaves, take them off the road, penalize them, whatever. But... You know, just be like, you injured Buff, you son of a bitch, or like, you injured my partner, or something like that. Like, write them off a different way for the audience. The shoot shit just doesn't work, because it doesn't make sense from a storyline perspective. If you want to, you know, propose to your audience that you have a um, a wrestling league that is controlled by evil people in charge... Why would the evil people in charge suspend Buff for, you know, inappropriate, unprofessional conduct? Because they are constantly doing unprofessional conduct. Like, hitting someone over the head in a baseball bat in a parking lot is not within the regulations of a signed entertainment-based competition match. So anyone that attacks anyone in the backstage should be suspended for unprofessional conduct. So this makes no fucking sense whatsoever. But, luckily, the implementations around the ring that you see are the calling card of my partner. Yeah. God, I hate the franchise. But there's a bunch of tables around the ring, so his partner is the wall because, and I quote, the new blood sticks together. That's a franchise quote. So, the new blood, or the wall chise, comes down for, you know, a, a, a tag team-based competition. And we got a match because the bell rings. So, Chronic defeats the wall chise via abandonment issues. It appears to be a tornado rules match because there are no tags made. 30 seconds in, Shane Douglas bails on the wall. Hilarious. Eventually, uh, the wall and Brian Clark are outside of the ring, and the wall gets his foot stuck in the gap between the ring and the ramp and literally, like, falls on his ass and takes one of the most hilarious thump bumps I've ever seen. Uh, eventually, he puts Brian Clark through a table. He back body drops Brian Adams through a table, but the table no-sells it and doesn't break. So in a glorious repeat of the spot, the wall tries to deadlift Brian Adams, okay, like to put him back on the table so he can break it. And Brian Adams is like, what are you doing? I don't know what you're doing. And, like, he has to deadlift him, and he kind of lifts him like a baby, and Brian Adams kind of falls out of his arms like, no, I don't want to get on the table. But the wall puts him, you know, he, he focuses and and harnesses the strength of the Incredible Hulk and puts him back on the table. Comes off the apron with a big splash through the table, through Adams. I don't know that the wall has ever practiced something like that. He probably broke a couple of ribs, and it makes me uh, it makes me smile. Eventually, though, uh, Chronic literally, as the wall gets back in the ring to pose, no cells then being put through tables. They get back into the ring at full strength. Get the wall back out of the ring. Why even go back in the ring? Like, just stay outside. But they do the high times on the announce table. And this is a sick announce table bump. Like, the WCW announce table is so weird because it's hollow. And, and the wall just kind of slides off of it. And they throw the table over the wall. They flip it, and it's on top of him, and they kind of stomp him. 
I mean, I don't know if this was a receipt for something like the the shitty Brian Adams splash, but and I'm not saying that I like took liberties, but I mean, you know, a plus point for the chronic tag team, I guess they come across as vicious world beaters. So good for them. That's good for the one, two, three when they get back on the ring. Chronic leaves. Brian Adams gets his foot stuck in the gap on almost, you know, like he, it's not as uh, obvious as what happens to the wall, but you can tell it's stuck when they, they go on the way out. Uh, three NXT guys disguised as EMTs come out. Uh, one of them kind of looks like a little Sonny Siaki. Uh, the wall takes out two of them and then takes little Sonny Siaki to the outside and uh, chokeslams him through a table. Uh, they play the wall's music, and that's an exit on the wall. This is the conclusion of the match. I don't know. This this was stupid, but really vicious in a cool way, and it had the hilarious botches and the sweet announce table spot. I'm going to give this two and three-quarter work injuries because, uh, you know, these guys could have uh, uh, clearly gotten hurt on the job here. So that's what we'll give it. Nothing great, nothing awful. Uh, so, yeah, we'll move on to the next segment. Now, the, the next segment in question takes us to the back in the office of Eric Bischoff, where he and Kimberly Page are sorting through, uh, I guess, the real estate section of the local newspaper. Uh, they also have a nice tray of fruit with them and an unwanted visitor in the Disco Inferno. The Disco Inferno is trying to get Eric's attention, and Eric has no time for it, so he finally gives in and says, what do you want? And Disco Inferno says he's tired of being with the Mama Lukes. He's being wasted. He wants to be with his friends. Bischoff tells him, fine, go do whatever you want. I don't care. Exit the Disco Inferno. He got what he wants. Now, the cat enters with Terry Funk in tow as his prisoner, kind of like, uh, I don't know, Boba Fett throwing around Han Solo is what it made me think of. The uh, awesome red scarf on the cat is back. Bischoff tells Funk, you know, he's willing to let bygones be bygones and start fresh. All you got to do is give him the hardcore title and Funk can retire with dignity. So Funk starts giving some speech about, I hate you, Eric Bischoff. I don't want to be the slave of you. I want to be the hardcore champion for the rest of my days. Um, he doesn't quite sound that much like the sheriff of Nottingham, but he's, he, you know, he, he's waxing poetic to Bischoff that he's the hardcore champion. And then, bam, out of the frame, the cat with a kick right to the side of the skull of Terry Funk. And he kind of plops over the table. Uh, Funk does an audible goddamn when he gets hit because the cat makes an impact. Now, the best part of this segment is that Funk kind of falls behind Bischoff and Kimberly, and the cat just jumps onto him and starts doing mounting worked punches like, da, 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 da. and the camera just kind of pans over back to Kimberly and uh, Eric Bischoff looking through the real estate section. And Bischoff's like, you know, there's a double wide right here next to the casino. If he lives here, maybe he could get a job at a casino on the weekends and maybe do the dishes, and then we cut the commercial. So a couple of things of note here. One, the cat, hilarious. The cat beating Terry Funk out of frame while they casually discuss uh, the real estate options in Biloxi, Mississippi. Outstanding. Hilarious and fantastic. Number two, I'm wondering if they're trying to find a place that Diamond Dallas Page can live now that Kimberly has the house and the divorce. And is the casino they're referencing the same casino that Jenny got yelled at for saying fuck 
I think this warrants some more investigation, but holy shit. Can you imagine if DDP was a blackjack dealer for Jenny and she didn't even, she was too drunk to realize it? Like, yo, monkey, you got 20. You really want another hit? And Jenny's like, fuck yeah, hit me. And he's like, monkey, you don't hit on 20. And she's like, fuck you, trailer trash guy, hit me. And then, you know, well, okay, you, you know, I hit you, there's an eight. Well, okay, 28, you bust my money. And Jenny's like, you son of a bitch. Jenny doesn't sound anything like that. And I don't think she's a sloppy drunk, and I'm not trying to make fun of her. But the fact that she told a story about the casino, and then they referenced it here, I had to do some sort of, some sort of sketch revolving around it. So uh, no offense intended to anyone. This is a dynamite segment. It only lasted about 40 seconds, and I've talked about it. Probably quadruple that, so move along. We come back from commercial, and there's some pretty swank uh, hip-hop music playing, saying things like, filthy, dirty, nasty, that's the way we like it. And it's the debut of the Filthy Animals uh, late 2000 intro, I guess. I actually am kind of a fan of this. They, like, drape the purple psychedelic uh, sheet over the entranceway, and then they... They stand in silhouette, and you can see, you know, they, they all pose, and then the, the fireworks go off and the sheet drops. I don't know. It's not perfect, but considering that one of the best things you can do for these mid-card guy, mid mid guys, aside from giving them personality or maybe a, a catchphrase, is a special entrance. So I'm here for that. Good for them. The filthy animals uh, at this point are Conan, the Juice, and Rey Mysterio. They all look like... Pieces of shit, I guess, would probably be the opportune term. Um, they come into the ring and cut a promo. Conan says they're going to take the hardcore title from Terry Funk. That's a lot of typical Conan shit. He does make fun of Terry Funk's wrestling tights, calling them 80s aerobic knockoffs. And I think that's pretty fucking funny because I do think they look like that. Terry Funk's Somebody Call My Mama Rock Remix hits. And uh, the cat is actually dragging him out to the ring, which is a great piece of synergy from the earlier segment. So the cat dumps him off, and I guess it's a hardcore match for the hardcore title. Uh, Terry Funk defeats the Filthy Animals via G.I. Bro nanigans. So what happens here are the Filthy Animals basically take turns beating up Terry Funk with a chair. But what's really stupid is that they all do one chair-based move to Funk to, to beat him up, right? The juice hits the, the people's juice bow on the top of the chair, on top of his face, but that would just hurt the juice's elbow. They hold the chair in front of Terry Funk's face, and uh, Conan hits the, like, rolling peel, potato peeler clothesline that he does, but his forearm smacks into the chair. That would just hurt Conan. And then Ray puts the chair over his ass and does a seated senton off the top rope. Now, that would probably hurt Terry Funk, but that's just going to hurt Ray's ass. I don't understand any of this. So Ray goes to put the chair over Funk's face or, or his throat, excuse me, concerto style, and the camera is actually on the entranceway. And in a pretty sweet move, I have to give him credit for this, the MIA sprint down to the ring, and Lieutenant Loco dives from the ramp over the top rope and hits Ray with a shoulder block. It's really smooth, and it's a really cool camera shot. It's a nice visual. I actually, in a non-joking way, give them a lot of props for capturing that appropriately. A, a, a brawl breaks out. The MIA is fighting the Filthy Animals. Disco Inferno runs out, showing his allegiance to his friends, the Filthy Animals, again, playing off the previous segment. And then it, it's a stalemate. 
G.I. Burrow himself, or as he's still known at this point, Booker T comes down in his street clothes, bookends everybody, beats up the MIA, or excuse me, helps the MIA beat up the filthy animals. They throw the filthy animals out of the ring, and in a great moment of, well, shit, we actually need to end this match, Booker grabs the juice, brings it back in, spine buster, they throw Funk on top of him, one, two, three, it's over, Funk retains, but Funk is still knocked out from those chair shots, so down comes Major Guns to give him some ridiculous sixth grade CPR, and uh, Funk lives at the end of the day. So, overall, this was short, uh, the chair-based offense didn't make any sense. But it was a lot of fun. I'm going to give it four breasts. Because at the end of the day, this was just an excuse to be like, hey, boys, look, this is Tylene Buck. And she has breasts. Uh, you, can, you can't see all the breasts. But when she leans over, you can see her breasts, uh, her cleavage, if you will. Good night. So, um, yeah, that's why I give it four breasts. So this match concludes. We cut to the back in the parking lot for a very quick spot right before commercial. A white limo arrives. Uh, before the limo even stops, the passenger, the door opens. It's Ric Flair. He's pissed. He just kind of sprints out of frame. And the Goldberg monster truck is here, Tony! And then we cut to commercial. Now, we come back from commercial, and I should probably mention, and I forgot this earlier, and I'm really sorry, let me tell you. Um, before the, the hardcore title match, there was a very brief segment in the back where Ralphus and uh, Norman Smiley are digging through the garbage can looking for food because they don't have jobs and they don't have any money. And Norman comes up with a great idea and says, Ralphus, do you trust me? I've got an idea of how we can make some money. And then the hardcore title match starts. Now, why it's appropriate to uh, bring it all back uh, to this moment is that we cut back to Ralphus and uh, Norman Smiley in the back with Ralphus's ass crack exposed. And it looks like they're going to be popcorn vendors this evening. And so let me just try to, to paint a picture of what we actually have here. So Ralphus and Norman are, are with a guy, okay? He's a, he's a little guy, and he's kind of talking fast, like he's Joey Pantoliano from The Matrix and from Ready to Rumble and all that jazz. And he's got suspenders on, and it's an old-timey popcorn machine. Like, we've all been to a wrestling event, and there's no, like, freestanding old-timey popcorn machine, all right? You go to a, a big fucking thing where they have nachos and pizza and all the nonsense and you order a thing of popcorn all right you get your popcorn you walk away like i don't know who this guy is like phineas j popcorn he's straight in like 1930s he's like i've been making 11 pound popcorn for my family for generations and this is the greatest business that i've ever owned and norman's like oh so please this this sells a popcorn for you you won't regret it and he's like i'm only gonna let you guys sell popcorn for me because i need the help tonight because i'm swamped like again this old-timey popcorn vendor should become a permanent character. He's that ridiculous. So uh, Norman and Ralph has promised not to eat the profits, and they won't let him down. He throws him some shirts. He gives him uh, popcorn trays full of pre-filled boxes. So at least that's a more uh, rational version of, like, how popcorn is actually sold in those little boxes. But, again, I've never seen a vendor at a professional wrestling event. Now, well, I have before, but I don't think they have them anymore. I think you, they're too much of a distraction or what have you. We can't have vendors selling official WWE licensed t-shirts down the aisle. Imagine, if you will, a vendor is asked a question, and he doesn't answer with appropriate WWE-level social engagement branding. What if he calls them a guy? What if he's like, hey, look at the guy on this shirt. This is Stone Cold Steve Austin. He's not a guy. He's a WWE superstar. So, uh, you know, Phineas J. Popcorn, 
hire some new folks, and we cut to the Russo, Russo and Bischoff area, the, the swank, you know, little boardroom where they were earlier, and it's uh, Bischoff, Kimberly, and the cat's back, and they're flanked by R&B security. Flair storms in, yelling at Bischoff, saying, Bischoff, when I agreed to come back to this company, you promised me this wasn't going to happen. You said you weren't going to let things get personal. You broke your word. And Bischoff's like, this is between you and Russo. This is all between you and him. Leave me out of this. Flair bails. And Bischoff's like, hey, Cat, why don't you go give Vince a head up, heads up that Flair's here and he's pissed. He tells Cat that Russo's in his trailer uh, around back. So exit scene as we cut back to the arena for Chris Candido. <laughs> so, so Chris Candido and Tammy come to the ring. And uh Candido cuts a promo saying that they're clearly the the um the first couple of professional wrestling, which adds more fuel to the fire that I think that Candido and Savage were gonna feud. I think Savage and Liz were gonna be a thing, and they were going to feud with Candido and Tammy, and that's how they were going to give Candido a big money program. That's that's how they got him in here. But of course, Savage flakes after the uh, boot bowl battle royal that was discussed weeks and weeks and weeks ago, because I don't think Chris Candido is intelligent enough to come out here and cut some sort of promo. He's probably going off weeks old notes like, yeah, we're the first couple of wrestlers. Isn't that still our thing? You told me that's what it was going to be when I was going up against the Macho Man, Vince Russo. And now there's no Macho Man. So who's we going to feud against? And um, we have a match. Uh, he only issues an open challenge for the Cruiserweight title in a couples match. So um, Daphne and Crowbar defeat Tammy and Chris Candido. Uh, via a very sloppy roll-up, and Daphne becomes the WCW Cruiserweight Champion. Normally, this is the section where I would tell you about all the shenanigans that happened during this match. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> this is a five-star Johnny C classic. This is one of the worst matches I've ever seen in my life. And as you can tell from me laughing during this recording, I don't even know if I can get through this fucking thing. There are so many botch moments. There's so many moments where, like, Crowbar and Chris Candido just freeze in place waiting for Tammy to do something or for Daphne to do something. There's a spot in the entrance ramp where Chris Candido tries five times to get Crowbar to go up for a pile driver, and Crowbar just has none of it. Uh, early in the match, Miss Hancock comes out of the ring and, and, and is taking notes, and it actually makes sense because we know that Miss Hancock and Daphne are going to feud over David Flair someday in the future. Spoiler alert. So during the botch shenanigans, um, Miss Hancock gets on the mic and says that she's going to dance for Tony Schiavone, and the announcers are all like, Tony, you've been holding out on us. <laughs> Fucking Miss Hancock's like, get my music. And it's like, rah, 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 rah. Boop, 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 boop. Ra 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 ra, and she just fucking thrusts her hips and shakes her derriere and dances in the middle of the aisle, and everybody's distracted. Tammy hits the one-handed Stone Cold Sitch stunner on Daphne. As soon as Daphne takes the move, Tammy goes over to the ropes, and Daphne gets right back up and rolls her up with a schoolgirl. The move just must not have hurt, or. Tammy remembered the script call, or Daphne remembered the script called for a roll-up. I don't know. I don't know what to fucking call it. I can't even give this. This is a five-star fair. 
Go back and watch this match. I cannot do it justice. I'm not even going to try. I'm not going to take the time to type out all the notes of things that, that were ridiculous. Five stars. Next segment. Oh, but there's no time to even think about what the next segment might be. Because we must be getting dangerously close to the top of the hour. Because here comes Ric Flair. And he absolutely puts the boots to Crowbar. Throws him out of the ring. Grabs the mic. Russo! Woo! Russo! Get your ass out here right now! Woo! That's like a Hulk Hogan-Ric Flair hybrid. Cut to Vinny Rue in the production truck. And he tells some innocent technician, When I give you a cue, you play that videotape. Your job depends on it! And we cut the commercial. Whoa! What could be happening? This is it, folks. It's the top of the hour, and we're about to have a Ric Flair-Vince Russo face-off. What could Vince Russo have possibly done at the home of Ric Flair to get under his skin so much? At this point in the podcast, I'm going to recommend that you pause this podcast, which something big must be happening, because there is no way in hell that I would ever tell you to pay attention to something that isn't me. Clearly, you can tell from the style of show that I produce, I want all the attention. But you need to go see this segment because I think it's pretty fucking awesome. So, last chance. All right, let's talk about what happens next. Oh, you should watch the segment is what I was trying to get at. Go watch it and come back. All right, now let's talk about it. So we come back from commercial. We fade in from black and flares in the center of the ring. The announcers set the scene that he's been going crazy the entire commercial break. He's... Russo, get your New York ass out here, blah, 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 blah. You know, he's not going anywhere. What could be on the tape? Could it be some sort of illicit uh, relations tape between Rick and Beth Flair? I don't know. We cut to the back for Vince. Wait, no. We cut to the back. <laughs> we, <laughs> we cut to the back. And, you know, of course, you think it's going to be a Russo thing. And that's what makes that part of this, the whole thing so awesome. And it's Sting, and he's leaving the arena. All right? Sting is done for the day because he has his suitcase. Sting is still wearing his full wrestling gear, his Sting trench coat, and his, like, mechanics black gloves. And his face is still painted. All right? <laughs> the camera goes behind Sting. And Sting's car is on fire. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if I were to walk out of my office and see my car aflame, I don't know that I would kind of toss my suitcase to the side, put my hands in my hips, and be like, ah, damn it, somebody set my car on fire. But that's exactly what Sting does. He kind of drops his suitcase, puts his hand on his hips, and he's like, well, those bastards are up to it again. <laughs> and why is he still wearing his sting outfit? If he's going back to the hotel to, to fucking call it in for the night and smoke some crack, like, what? Does he just check into the Motel 6's sting? Like, oh, hey, welcome to the Motel 6. I'm Brad. How can I help you? Yeah. Ah, uh, I, I need a room. It should be reserved under Stinger. Um, I don't have a Stinger. Would it be under anything else? Hey, Jack, check out the paint. I'm the stinger. Uh, I have a Steve, the actor. Yeah, that's me. Sting, the actor. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, that, that Motel 6 gag doesn't happen. But then we cut back to Flair, who's still in the ring. 
I love this cutaway. I don't rank cutaways, but I gave it five stars. We're still waiting for Russo, though. What's going to happen next? So, Rick is in the ring, waiting, and then a video starts to play on Nitrovision. So, in this video, a white sports car pulls up to a house and <laughs> makes sure to drive through the grass on the way to parking. And out pops the Brooklyn Dodger himself, Vinnie Rue, David Flair, and then the trunk opens up and Daphne pops out, uh, still wearing the price tags on their I Love New York t-shirts. Russo has a microphone and says, Expose, I'm Geraldo, baby. They're at the Flair Estate. It's an all-American home, but David doesn't live here because he's an outcast. So I'm going to take this step by step as what is basically about to happen is Russo, David Flair, and Daffy are going to walk through the Flair Estate in Charlotte, whoa, North Carolina, and uh, they're going to point out some inadequacies about the Ric Flair house versus David Flair's life. Immediately, Russo notices a limo outside. He's like, whose limo is that? And David says, that is for the personal grocery go-getter, for her. Talking about Beth Fleer, his stepmom. I never rode in it, David says. So they fade to the family room. Daphne is, is sitting at the piano, tickling the ivory. She's playing Perestroika and Glasnost. We love you, the utmost. And how is your sister tonight? Bum, bum. It's very funny. Over the fireplace is a 1990s style glamour shot portrait of Beth, the, which is Rick's wife and David's stepmom. Uh, Ashley Fleer, or, uh, Charlotte Flair, the fucking awesome sports entertainer that we know and love today, and Reed Flair. So, I'm going to walk you through what, <laughs> some of Russo's observations. I want to make it clear that this is all in the spirit of having fun, as these fuckers clearly are. If I say anything bad about Reed, it's just that, okay? It's just fucking part of the shtick. Alright, so... Oh, regarding Beth, modern medicine is truly a miracle. Look at the faceless that woman has had. Re regarding Ashley, the demon child herself. Re regarding Reed, this punk right here, the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania Dutch kid. This is the guy that's been causing you all these problems, huh, David? Yeah, they call him champ around here, is what David says. And then they zoom in on the picture. And it reminds me of fucking the, the glamour shot of like Jonah Hill as a kid with the with the fucking rubber glove from Twenty One. Oh, they go to Ric Flair's bedroom, which they call Space Mountain. At this point, Tony Schiavone goes, "They're trespassing here." Big Rue says, "Hold the mic. I always wanted to do this." He runs over towards the Flair bed and does a superfly splash. You know, all things considered, this is kind of a wimpy-looking bed for Ric Flair. I mean, it's nothing impressive. I think it actually might be smaller than my bed. And I don't say that as a person who's like, oh, I have a bed. It's just, I don't know. There is a sweet little terrace that connects to the bedroom, though. And they go outside, and uh, uh, Dave, uh, Vinnie Roos says, David, what's that? And he's like, that's their swimming pool, and it's a really nice pool. And then he slowly points over to the right to, like, a forest area, and he goes, That is my swimming pool! <laughs> it's like a muddy creek. And Russo goes, That little creek? That polluted, filthy, shock-infested creek? 
<laughs> they go to the closet and Russo's talking about all the Gucci and Armani and Flair has too many shoes. He steals a robe, which I think is from Super Brawl 6. I don't know why I know that. If I do know that, I don't know. They go to David's room, which is the, uh, oh no, sorry, they go to Champ's room, full of trophies and medals. Russo actually, with the robe on now, lifts a couple of Reed Flair's, like, amateur wrestling medals and starts wearing them around his neck. They go down to the unfinished basement, which David claims is his room. Russo has, like, the sound, the sound, the sad voice on. He's like, I have seen animals live better than this, David. I hope everyone watching can still sleep tonight and that the children watching won't be affected. Before you go to bed tonight, hug your children. Tell them how much you love them. And then, you know, Russo and David hug, and it's really cute. So uh, these guys are, you know, they're done. They've said the things they needed to say, and they're trying to just leave peacefully. But wouldn't you know, on the way out, Beth, Reed, and Ashley walk in. Now, Reed has on a, a just like a plain white shirt that says Abercrombie. And he's rocking a gold chain, and he has the uh, uh, bangs of his hair spiked up with gel nice and high. Thus proving, once and for all, in case anyone was doubting, that it is indeed the year 2000. Uh Russo and Reed start, like, bitch-slapping one another, like, flicking their hands at each other, like, I don't know, like, dumb and dumber, like, like, I don't know. I don't know what to say about it. Uh, oh, man, and Beth's like, get out of here, you're trespassing, and Russo's like, yeah, throw them on the street, just like you've been doing for the last 21 years, and everybody leaves out the door. As they're leaving, Russo's the last guy out. He pauses, stops, looks right at Charlotte Flair, and he goes, You keep your hands to yourself, young lady. <laughs> it just leaves. And Charlotte has this look on her face. Like, she doesn't know where she is. Oh, my God, man, this is the greatest segment in the history of our sport. But I will tell you this, loyal WCW was Dionites. That is not the ending of the segment. We cut back to the arena with a close-up on the, on the visage of Ric Flair. And Scott Hudson says, That is the face of a man whose life has just collapsed! And while I certainly understand what they're going for, if you really step back and think about it, if you're Ric Flair and a couple of people go into your house with a camera looking to expose like something awful about you, I would imagine you're getting off pretty free and clear, considering the uh, low stakes of what they actually reveal about the true Ric Flair. But David and Daphne come on out to the uh, to the entranceway, and Daphne's got all the TNA's Next Generation hardware on her arms, including her new Cruiserweight title. Rick's pissed that David beat up Arn on Thunder. Ric Flair is calling in his title shot tonight. And you know why he's doing that tonight? Because he won a title shot in the Boot Bowl Battle Royal. He's supposed to get it at the Great American Bash. But he's cashing in his boot-in-the-bank contract tonight. Because at the Great American Bash, it's going to be David Fleer versus Ric Flair. Not your dad, as he says. And Ric is so confident, he puts his career on the line. But as he does, he turns around and eats a guitar from the ch -ch -ch chosen one and gets put in the figure four as the segment ends with the heels on top. Now, overall, I definitely, you know, I think I enjoy this segment a lot because I find the humor in it. I really enjoy uh, Vince Russo sort of amping it up to 11, but for purposes that actually 
enhance the fact that these are deranged heels that believe nonsense. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you think about your, your, your favorite heel commentators like The Brain or Jesse Ventura, and it's like, you know, they would kind of go to great lengths to make their point, but they wouldn't. They would sort of alter the perception of reality, but keep it reality-based. I don't know if that makes sense, but the point I'm trying to get across is that this is a great example of Russo doing sports entertainment stuff, but, you know, it's enhancing a mid-card talent. Uh, I use the word talent loosely, but that's, you know, it is what it is. And, like I said, they crank it up to 11 or 12, but they don't go overboard. Yes, some of the comedy is a little out there, but... They're not, I don't know, they're not breaking their own universe rules. I don't even know how to explain. I just think that for, if you, if you read the segment on paper, it sounds like it could have been a disaster. But, man, they just really delivered. And kudos to David Flair, too. He's not as funny as Russo, but he does have some dynamite one-liners. Like, I never wrote in it, talking about the white limo and when he's talking about champ. And the idea of, like, David Flair, who's an adult, being tormented by little Reed Flair, even when he was, like, eight, winning amateur wrestling championships is pretty funny. So kudos to David for keeping it in character and delivering where he needed to. I think this is probably one of the better, you know, if I, I'm objective about it and not laughing, one of the better Russo segments that he's probably ever done in WCW. Um, so kudos to that. It definitely puts a stamp on this episode of Nitro. But we're not done yet. We cut backstage and Russo is flanked by r security and the lovely Miss Elizabeth. He's on a headset telling the guy to fix it. Send somebody up there and fix it because we're going to have some tough love tonight. It might have something to do with the cage, Tony. Cut the commercial. We come back. And Tony Giovanni cuts a promo for WCW Reload, which is apparently a new pregame show on WCW.com, hosted by Bob Ryder and Jeremy Burr-Ash, whoever that is. It's free. And I kind of wish that this stuff wasn't lost to history because I would love to hear about it. Apparently, they take fan calls, uh, you know, people who think it's real. or uh, Sorry, I shouldn't have said real because I, too, hate when people say that, but I was just trying to generalize for comedic purposes. You know, people who don't realize it's a show um, in terms of the storylines. Obviously, the work is the work, but uh, I don't know. I would love to hear some of that stuff just for uh, historical purposes. But even without those archive files, we do have some historical significance coming up in our next match. Before that could start, though, Russo is coming down the aisle with the event Chuck Palumbo, Miss Elizabeth still in bondage, and a fleet of R&B security. And, of course, he's got a big shit-eating grin on his face because of the uh, level of mockery he's just provided to the Fleer family. So he's on cloud nine, which is probably why he's uh, about to do this to the poor, poor Miss Elizabeth. You've got to uh, – they do a pretty cool wide shot. You can actually see, like, a Joe the Plumber up on top of the roof fixing the uh, the cage that Sting broke. I don't know. That's kind of a cool thing to see uh, actually at work, although it's a little behind-the-scenes stuff. But, uh, you know – I don't necessarily trust that WCW is a type of company to make sure that this guy's off the top of the cage before they raise it, so I hope he finishes up soon. But uh, the announcers are appalled about Russo going through Flair's house, especially Tony Schiavone, thus proving his allegiance to the Jim Crockett promotion era uh, stable of wrestlers still. So I'm from New York, and there's always a plan. I don't know what that means, but he said it. And so I made note of it. He's tired of Liz making a horse's ass out of him. It's time for some tough love. 
So tonight, in the House of Pain, it's going to be Miss Elizabeth versus Medusa. Now, Scott Hudson is appalled by this uh, this concept. She's in heels in a short skirt, for Pete's sake! Uh, but, alas, it's going to happen. So Russo tells R&B security to surround the cage so nobody can get in, and the main event, Chuck Palumbo, is supposed to stand at guard of the door with the key to lock it. Russo decides to stay in the cage during the match with the microphone, and the bell rings! So we've got an official match. So, Miss Elizabeth versus Medusa in a House of Pain match didn't officially end because no one was ever strapped to the side of the cage, which means this is a historic occasion. It is, to date, the longest match in professional wrestling history, lasting just 14 days shy of three years. So Medusa defeated Miss Elizabeth in a House of Pain match via forfeit on May 1st, 2003. Right away, Medusa has got her finger waving in Liz's face, and she's ready to take her to town. She's pissed. Russo mentions uh, on the house mic that, You're from Kentucky, and I'm from New York. And while I would necessarily agree, I would, I would agree that being from New York would be better than being from Kentucky, I'm not sure how it relates to the contest at hand, and I'm getting a little tired of Russo's New York references that don't contain context. You know, if he's trying to say that, he is a superior wrestling mind because he's from New York and that's where all the success and the money is made, then okay. But just, you know, your state of birth doesn't necessarily uh, mean anything. But whatever, I'm not going to dig into it too much. So Joe the Plumber actually dives into the ring at this point for the top of the cage. And Madden's like, what's the maintenance man doing, Tony? And wouldn't you know it, Joe the Plumber is it a plumber, and he's not even a maintenance man, he rips off his mustache, indicating that it's a fake. He takes off his St. Louis Cardinals hat, indicating he's not actually a fan. And he takes off his 99-cent hairpiece. And my God, good night, it's Lex Luger! Uh, I don't know if Lex Luger is better served as a professional wrestler or a maintenance worker in the year 2000, but by gum, he's both of them tonight. Medusa starts attacking Luger immediately, and Russo's jumping up and down with excitement like he's a kid at a goddamn McDonald's birthday party. It is a sight. It is hilarious. What's not hilarious is, of course, the obligatory year 2000 WCW man-on-woman violence as Lex Luger puts Medusa in the torture rack. Uh, this is countered immediately, though, by Russo with a low blow. And Luger, while he does drop Medusa from the rack position... He doesn't sell it. He just turns and looks Russo in the eye. And Russo's still got the house mic, so he's like, What are you, Superman or something? Which I just love because I'm a comics nerd. But also, uh, you got Batman v Superman. This is because, you know, Russo's the Batman. This is truly a dawn of justice for all of mankind, and I'm here for it. Luger pulls a cup out of his trousers, and Scott Hudson yells, It's Cup City! What a fucking moron. However, in a great callback, to the 1996 evil Miss Elizabeth heel turn when she joined up with the horseman, she takes off her shoe, and Russo takes it right to the face. He may have came, though, but that's okay, because I'm going to appreciate the callback, especially when you consider that Russo was in those billionaire Ted skits where they made fun of the women's shoe offense, or WSBO, women's shoe-based offense. Yeah, that's what we'll go with. And uh, 
Man, it was just a total full circle on these storylines, and it was fucking great. Eventually, though, the door comes open, and R&B security, you know, purges all over Lex Luger, including Samurai Cop, my favorite R&B security squad member, who has the mace. And I think for the third or fourth time in the history of WCW Must Die, Luger gets maced, which begs the question, what was WCW's mace budget? And did that cost, uh, you know, go to eventually lead to their downfall? Is that the, the budgetary line item that put him in the danger zone? I don't know, but I'm going to pretend that it is. The event comes in and beats the fucking package down with a bat. I mean, mercilessly, if this was not a work, Luger would be dead by the amount of bat shots that he's about to get in. But wouldn't you know, oh, and no, it's not Teen Wolf coming down for the save. It's Kevin Nash. He walks at a brisk pace, uh, but definitely doesn't run down the aisle, gets in the cage, and all of the R&B security members, you know, dive onto him, and he fights them all off. There's like 12 dudes, so they're really putting Nash over hard. But during this melee, Riz and Luce, Riz, Russo escapes with Liz in tow, so he still uh, got her underneath bondage. Uh, security eventually runs away. Medusa is left in the House of Pain all by herself, and while she eventually would be declared the victor when Miss Elizabeth passed away, sadly, uh, she is about to be bombed. She is in the jackknife position, but thank God in the heavens above that Mike Awesome rescues her and they escape. Nash gets on the house mic, and hey, Awesome, I challenge you to an ambulance match. And he says... As my good buddy Scott Hall would say, don't just sing it, bring it. And then he has a crotch chop, which was kind of sad. It's the first time I've encountered Nash and Hall referencing one another since Hall's untimely passing. So, But, you know, from a wrestling perspective in the year 2000, Hall's out. He's not coming back. I don't think it makes sense to reference him, but Nash is going to do what Nash wants to do. Um. That ends this presentation. We all know the match doesn't end until 03. I'm going to go ahead and apply a star ranking to it. I'd give it two stars, okay? Yes, it was a clusterfuck and a lot of, en- and a lot of entertainment was had by me, but I think if you're going to go out and declare yourself to be the longest match in history, you shouldn't be this underwhelming. Um, you know, of course, I haven't watched any of the match that takes place after this program. Um, I did see some of the news coverage from uh, 03 when the match ends, and that was kind of sad and did not improve the star ranking. We cut to the back with me and Gene Okerlund. He's got Big Papa Pump, and Big Papa Pump has Vince Russo's format, and he tells him, hey, Vince Russo, you can shove this format up your ass. That sounded more like Rick Steiner or basically not even anybody at all. Should we try that again? Take two. Vince Russo, you can shove this format up your ass. Use take two. Uh, he's in street clothes, and he's waiting for Rick Steiner and Take Abbott in the back. He wants to have an, a fight in the alleyway because there's too many rules in wrestling. And then that's the end scene there. Back in the arena, Norman Smiley and Ralphus are giving popcorn to fans, and the announcers wonder aloud if they're actually remembering to collect funds. I suppose we shall see. A hype for the WCW magazine here as they promote an article that's all about Goldberg coming to terms with the fact that he was a dumb shit and cut his arm up punching out that window. 
I would love to read the article where Goldberg blames the window and not himself, as I can only imagine. Cut to the back alley where Scott Steiner is up waiting patiently for Rick and Tank. Well, the camera's on Rick and Tank. They might, they must be heading towards that back alley. But good night! Here come Adeja and Shakira with two-by-fours, and they break them over the skulls of Tank Abbott and Rick Steiner. But these are ladies hitting them, so they kind of no-sell because they all know. We all know that women in 2000 WCW are too weak to overtake men. Uh, Scott Steiner eventually emerges, and he's beaten on Tank. Rick Steiner reappears with a two-by-four, probably the same one that didn't break. They start laying the beat down on Scott, and it's a really shitty, like, stomp beat down, where they're just like, stomp, 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 stomp. We better stall because we're waiting for the Goldberg truck. Stomp, stomp, stomp. Madge does get a great line in where he says, I oh, take Abbott's been in so many street fights, Tony. Most of the streets are named after him. And I thought that was pretty funny. But here comes Goldberg. Autobots, roll out. Goldberg and Miss Prime is here on the prowl, and he starts just running over random cars in the parking lot. <laughs> but hilariously, the camera is not actually on the truck as he's doing it, and so we just have to hear the announcers tell us that it's happening. It's pretty fucking funny. Eventually, the Goldberg truck gets closer to the, the wrestling competitors in the alley. The bad guys run away because they're the bad guys, and that's what they're scripted to do. But when the Goldberg truck driver revs the engine close to the action, Scott Steiner legitimately gets freaked out and immediately stops selling his injuries and just runs away. It's so fucking funny. That's the end of that segment, though. We go to commercial. We come back from commercial to this dynamite statement, which I precogged a couple of episodes ago when I mentioned that Madden had to make amends. And this is a quote. Two weeks ago, I implied that Bruno San Martino was dead. He's not. I apologize. And that is the end of that. And if you think it can't get any more awkward, allow me to present to you our next match. It's time for the ambulance match. As Kevin Nash defeats Mike Awesome via what Tony Schiavone calls a super double team powerball. <laughs> so... I immediately start the chuckles as uh, Kevin Nash is backing the ambulance out of the backstage area to the arena. And, like, the little sheet that they drape, out, drape down behind Nitro Vision gets stuck on the ambulance and a shit to the technicians trying to run and stop the entire Nitro set from collapsing. In retrospect, they probably should have just let it happen. But, uh, you know, we stay afloat and, the, uh, and, the, and, you know, things continue. Eventually, Awesome comes down and the bell rings. There's nothing entertaining happening of note in the match so far. It's a bunch of punches and kicks and what have you. Eventually, my ears pop because Scott Hudson tries out calling Mike Awesome CK Awesome. CK Awesome with a clothesline, Tony. With the CK standing for a career killer. What? It's the worst fucking thing I've ever heard in my life. Um, it's actually not the worst nickname that Scott Hudson would try to get over during his WCW tenure. That is coming soon when Goldberg, uh, in his human form, not in his robot, Autobot form, returns. But we'll get to that when that happens. Eventually, Nash, uh, you know, he does some chair stuff. <laughs> like, hey, Mike, during this match, I'm going to do some chair stuff? Uh, you never done any chair stuff before. It'd be a little off-putting at first, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think you're going to have a good time. They fight on the ramp. Awesome has the uh, the upper hand. And Kevin Nash does four 
low blows in a row to Mike Awesome. Uh, awesome, he sells it, but he doesn't sell it like it hurts. It's like, it's so weird. Because Nash does one low blow, and then he, like, pushes him forward with his shoulder because he's down on his hands and knees, and then he hits another one and more forward shoulder put. Like, I, I can't even describe it. I'm not even going to try to do it justice. It's just fucking weird. Uh, they get closer to the ambulance uh, where the entrance is proper and there's a little more room to work with. Awesome uh, goes to grab a table, and then he goes back to the ramp, and just as he gets into frame, an RKO out of nowhere, Tony! Oh, wait, no, it was actually a diamond cutter. But Diddy P is here! My God, I thought he was beaten to death in an avalanche! So, the insiders are here, you know, because eventually DDP and Kevin Nash will form the insiders tag team as opposed to the outsiders. They're putting in work and about to take out Mike Awesome so Kevin Nash can win this ambulance match. They go over to where uh, the table is set up. So, so let me set the scene because this is super important. I don't like to dive into each individual second of these shows, but I, this, this has to be explained. So the table that Mike Awesome set up is near the ramp area, okay? Uh, on the side of the stage, like where Edge would go over and crouch down and point up and pose, you know, and he's coming out for a big match, is where the table is. So Nash has Mike Awesome in the jackknife position to lift, okay? DDP is standing to Kevin Nash's right, doing the, like, Scott Hall point over at the guy who's doing the thing motion. Now, in order to fully grasp what happens in the next five seconds or so, I'm going to ask you all to just take a step back and think about bullet time, okay? Now, if you're not familiar with bullet time, it's a special effects concept that was introduced in the Matrix films where the, the film slows down to a crawl where you can actually watch a bullet travel uh, instance to instance, if you will. So it's like super duper slow motion, uh, and, and, you know, that, that's pretty much the gist of it. So Nash lifts Mike Awesome for the jackknife powerball. And remember, this is all in bullet time. He gets him up to the point where if AJ Styles were doing it, he would cross the legs over to do the Styles Clash. So Mike Awesome is pretty much completely vertical. It's at this point you start to realize that Nash is not taking his sweet time He's struggling and about to drop Mike Awesome. Still in bullet time, DDP is doing the finger point, and Mike Awesome's eyes just bust out of his skull like, oh, shit. DDP realizes what's about to occur, and he moves a little bit faster, but still in bullet time, and goes to, like, put his hands underneath Mike Awesome. Okay? Now, moving a little bit quicker... DDP helps Nash lift Awesome into a better powerbomb position, but he's only about 75% in a full jackknife position. Nash decides, ugh, fuck it, he'll be okay, and just kind of throws him forward, all right? Awesome forward, throws Awesome forward, pronouns, pal. DDP is still holding onto Awesome's back to keep him from dying. Uh, you know, DDP couldn't be there his entire life, though, and, and Awesome would eventually die. But he doesn't want Awesome to die from this botched jackknife. DDP, because Nash releases Awesome, has to jump off the fucking stage with Awesome to hold him 
in a somewhat leveled position so he doesn't die, and takes the power bomb through the table with Awesome. Now, only Awesome sells it as if it hurt. DDP gets back up, and uh, the insiders pose for the crowd, and uh, the ref calls for the bell because Mike Awesome can't compete, and, you know, they'll put him in the ambulance and end things officially. Holy fuck balls, guys. Let's exit bullet time and get back to normal time. I cannot believe this. It has to be seen to be believed. I'm giving this full match four lazy power bombs, and it is literally for the six seconds that takes place in bullet time. That gets four stars alone. Cut to Bischoff in the back, watching him load Mike Awesome into an ambulance on a little TV screen, and he just beats his hands on his knees and says, Fine, I'll do it myself. And he, you know, grabs the Infinity Gauntlet and puts it on, and we cut to commercial. But what he really does say is, Fine, you know, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. And then we cut to commercial. But I couldn't help but make the Thanos reference. And before we go to commercial, we cut to the back and see an awesome black sports muscle car arrive, and Hulk Hogan Terry Bollea is indeed here. A little late, but better late than ever, I suppose. We come back from commercial, and it's got I got great news for you guys. Ralphus and Norman have sold all of their popcorn. They still have their vendor trays, but they're empty, and they're ready for more. But the old-timey popcorn machine uh, is, is unmanaged currently. So they don't really know what to do. Uh, oh, it looks like Ralph is, still has a little bit of their popcorn stuck in his teeth. So uh, Norman tells him that he needs to pick it out. And the camera fucking zooms in as Ralph is, opens his mouth and, like, cocks his head back. And we see his tooth. And I, I mean tooth. And it's the grossest fucking thing I've ever seen. And I about threw up. Um, but shortly, meaning hmm, two seconds later, I was grossed out yet again. Ralphus goes to get more popcorn to fill up the boxes and the trays, and he's fingering his asshole as he walks behind the old-timey popcorn machine. And then he sticks not only his hands and his face, but like most of his body into the old-timey popcorn machine to start swooping up the popcorn and uh, deliver the uh, COVID virus, uh, you know, fucking 20 years early uh, by mixing his ass juice with this popcorn. But thank God! Phineas J. Popcorn is here, and he puts a stop to it. He says, hey, what are you guys doing? Did you order extra butter? Because I didn't. Oh, yeah. Hey, uh, oh, uh, what am I doing here? Uh, he fires him on the spot. He tells him they're not getting a paycheck because I'm out of business. You're lucky I don't sue them. So Ralphus and Norman leave with their heads dejected, and it's like, Christmas time is here. Do, do, do. And they just walk away really sad. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm not sad for them, though. I'm more depressed for Phineas J. Popcorn. I mean, I think this is going to end the multi-generational dominance of the Phineas J. Popcorn Corporation, and I'm saddened by this. I hate to see a, a, a good American business fail. Ah, it just breaks the old heart, doesn't it? But alas... My broken heart is mended when Ernest the Cat Miller comes down the aisle with Eric Bischoff and Kimberly. Will somebody please get Eric Bischoff some darker denim? He just looks like everybody's like dad dressed at a fucking, I don't know, something in the afternoon that their wife made him go to. And the dad was like, all right, I'll go. But damn it, you need to tell me what to wear because I don't know what you wear to this thing. And the wife's like, just wear a nice shirt and some jeans. And he picks out these jeans and it's just, oh. God, it's fucking disgusting. Scott Hudson calls Bischoff both the kingpin and the kingfish. 
So whatever. Bischoff just straight up calls out DDP and says, you know, let's go. Let's fight. DDP uh, comes out. He's doing okay after the, taking that vicious table spot from Kevin Nash. Cut my music, monkey. He says, you know, cat, in some circles around here, you're known as a pretty tough son of a bitch. But I think you're a pussy, cat. Uh, and then he throws the mic in Bischoff's face, hits him with it, hits the cat. And he just starts literally beating down the the shit out of both of them. He's on offense. I mean, this isn't like a match or anything, but it's just kind of a, a, a weird face beatdown. Eventually, Cat and DDP find themselves back into the ring after Brian on the outside. Kimberly hits one of the weakest chair shots in the history of our sport, but thank God Ernest the Cat Miller has his wits about him and delivers a fierce feliner, thus actually uh, causing DDP to, quote-unquote, be injured for this next segment to happen. Bischoff is back in now, and him and the Cat are putting the boots to DDP when all of a sudden I hear a tune. And my first instinct was to be like, that's the Warriors music! Dun, 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 dun. But it's not. It's the greatest peacock dub in the history of our sport. It's the dubbed Sid music. And oh my god, Tony! Sid Vicious is here! <laughs> not only is Sid Vicious here to rescue Diamond Dallas Page, but he has on a black, like, three-quarter league sweatshirt <laughs> that says in large, very large, ironed-on letters, okay? It's like Sid went to pick up the jerseys for his softball team and then slipped the guy a fiver. <laughs> Dude went in the back and made him this shirt. <laughs> it says Sid, enough said, with an E-N-U-F-F. Enough said, Woohoo! Get her done, Sid. I, I'm just, I'm blown away that Sid is here. I'm blown away that he got this shirt from his local printing press. I'm just, I'm blown away that I'm hearing his music. I'm in a real happy spot. And as if I couldn't get, if this couldn't get any better, it absolutely fucking does. Because Sid, instead of running into the safe, um, takes a place in the corner and starts beating on the turnbuckle and trying to rally the crowd to cheer for DDP and reaches his hand out so DDP can make the tag. When did a fucking tag team match start? What is this? Even though Sid's, okay, Sid's only coming out here to turn heel on DDP, but what's with the setup? Why do the tag thing? And here's the best part. Here's the best part. DDP sees Sid reaching his hand out and starts crawling towards him and then makes a diving tag. DDP makes a diving tag. He's so hurt he couldn't stand up, but he makes a diving tag. Why is he tagging Sid Vicious? He didn't even know Sid Vicious was here. It's not a tag team match. Sid comes in and beats him up. The uh, pronouns, pal. He beats up DDP. Oh, my God. I can't believe Sid Vicious is teamed up with Eric Bischoff. They took the world title from him on April 10th, Tony. Here comes Hulk Hogan, Terry Bollea to issue a beatdown. Anarchy! Anarchy! Uh, you know, the bad guys run away. Bischoff's pissed. Tells Hogan to stay in the ring because he's got a match for him coming up next. Wow. I I don't know, guys. I don't know how this is going to end, but when you really compound everything that we've experienced in this May 15th, year 2000 episode of Monday Nitro, I'm pretty fucking close to declaring this the best Nitro in the history of WCW must die. I don't know. I'm going to have to crunch some numbers and run the stats, but holy shit, a fucking 
uh, uh, a wild Sid Vicious appears with the fucking homemade softball team shirt. We've got Ernest the Cat Miller out here. DDP conforming to tag team rules in a non-tag team scenario. And the dub music. Oh, man. I mean, I just... <laughs> just makes me so proud that the boys from WCW seem to really put this show together just for me. <laughs> Excuse me, I need a tissue. As I hold back my tears, though, I want to take just a second before we get into some real crazy shit, as if it could get any crazier, to give a shout out to some of the great podcasts across the uh, quad pods, if you will. We've got the Cronoso Daily Pod Blast, where we take you through the WWF slash E pay-per-view big event schedule one match at a time. It's a great way to start your day. Lots of great evergreen content that covers most of the popular eras in wrestling. You know, we've got the Wrestling War Zone for your Monday night era. Well, we should probably go in order. we got New Gen on a mission for your New Genness. We've got the Wrestling War Zone for when the war was hot. We've got WCW Must Die for when WCW clearly lost. We've got the Ruthlessly Aggressive podcast for when shit got ruthlessly aggressive, uh, uh, you know, after uh, the lead-up to WrestleMania 19 and forward with Cena and Orton and all those guys. ECW Extreme Three-Way Dance. For all the uh, people that can stand to watch that shit on Peacock without the real music, I'm just not one of them. TNA never dies for that crazy era when TNA was on pay-per-view. and Man, they had some crazy shit going on. So really just all kinds of awesome shit. And a special shout-out to the place to be uh, nation, to uh, you know the, the mothership, if you will, the home office, PTB, uh, you know, 600 episode. Uh, it's such a milestone. I, I come to this endeavor as a person who, for probably a very long time, uh, God, back two jobs ago when I used to have to travel around the, the states and, and drive a lot of places and had nothing but myself to get me through the times, except for the place to be, uh, God, those Vintage Vault episodes. I mean, there's a lot, so much awesome shit. The Vintage Vault was, is, remains, always will be my favorite, just because it's a it's a good entry point for people because, you know, when you're looking, looking for podcasts, especially back in the day, you know, before it really became a thing that was, I mean, shit, some dumbass like me could do. Um, You know, it was one thing to find something that talked about something you were interested in, but then to find a content creator who came across with a level of just credibility. It was, it was entertaining to listen to. I mean, it, to me, that was it. I, I had to be able to, to listen and, and to, to get engaged. And PTBN always did that for me. Where the big boys play was also a big one for me. And I'm not sitting here kissing ass. I'm just telling truths. There were other podcasts, too, that had nothing to do with wrestling or, you know, PTBN or Chad or JT or Scott or anything like that. So, you know, I love them, too. The We Hate Movies podcast gang doesn't need a shout-out from me. They're doing just fine, and they're fucking awesome. But they were there, too, from the beginning. Uh, and so there you go. I'm proof that I'm not just kissing ass. Uh, I'm giving everybody equal shouts-out that, uh, you, know, made, you know, made something for me to listen to amongst thousands of other people, and we can't thank you enough for that. So, yeah, them my plugs. Uh, let's move on to the final couple of segments of this absolutely batshit crazy awesome episode of Monday Nitro. So, Hogan's in the ring waiting for his opponents that were promised by Bischoff. Well, we've got BK 
Billy Kidman and H.H. Horace Hogan uh, coming down the aisle. Ding, ding, ding. The match begins, and Horace Hogan defeats Kidman and Hulk Hogan, Terry Bollea, via his bodily urges. Now, when the match starts, Horace is hesitant. And it's strange, because why would he come this far if he still wasn't committed to the New Blood concept? I don't quite get it. What I do get, though, is Eric Bischoff on commentary. When I'm telling you that Eric Bischoff is fired up from the last couple of segments, he is fired up! All right? He is ready to bring it. Uh, Kidman jumps early on a spot back in the ring, uh, which results in Terry Bollea throwing him from the middle of the ring in the slingshot position. He takes a dive all the way over the rope and onto the ramp, rolls about halfway down the ramp, and it was really fucking entertaining. Uh, Hogan's whipping him with the belt while Horace watches, most likely getting aroused, because who doesn't? Whipping's just one of those things that I think we could all get behind. I mean, there's a reason Catwoman is so popular, right? I'm kidding. I don't really think that that's the reason Catwoman's popular. Well, it might be in some circles Catwoman's a cool character, so nothing against her. But, you know, whip, whip jokes are fun. Um, Eric is talking a lot of shit to the announcers, telling Tony and Scott Hudson to shut up, you know, because they're the good guy announcers. And Madden's all like, yeah, shut up, you guys. And then Eric, <laughs> this begins the, the fucking absolute dynamite uh, delivery. He gets a couple of good ones in, does Bischoff. He says, shut up, Madden. Eat less and watch more. And Tony starts laughing and Bischoff goes, what are you laughing at, Giovanni? You're right behind him over at the Waffle House every morning. <laughs> Kidman is begging Horace for assistance. Uh, Horace does nothing. Madden's like, no, he's patient himself. Hogan confronts Bischoff at the announce table. And uh, Bischoff's running like, get him away from me, get him away from me. And Hogan legitimately grabs a stack of papers in front of Scott Hudson and throws them into the crowd. As he throws them, you can see that it was a bunch of papers that were clearly stapled together, typed out. It was a pretty decent stack. So, folks... Somebody out there in Biloxi caught themselves a copy of the format for the May 15th, 2000 Nitro. And if you somehow hear this podcast, hit me up at the Johnny C and I will promptly PayPal you $3.73 for extensive photocopies. I don't even need the real thing. Um, Hogan walks away from the confrontation and Bischoff bravely proclaims, yeah, you better move away. I'll kick his ass, you know. Uh, and then Kidman gets an uppercut on Hogan. <laughs> I repeat that. Kidman uppercuts Hogan. And Bischoff goes, tremendous uppercut by the Kidster. And Hudson goes, the Kidster. <laughs> oh, eventually, uh, you know, it's a breakdown. Horace refuses to comply. Easy E slaps him. So Horace uh, takes a chair to Easy E and Kidman. The filthy animals come down. Uh, Horace gives Hulk, Hulk a chair, and it's just, they go back to back like they're fucking Ray and Kylo Ren, and they're just taking out the filthy animals with chairs. None of this makes sense, given how it's going to go in a minute. Uh, Ray Mysterio is wearing a t-shirt that says Booty Hunter, which makes me think it might be like a special late night superhero show that he would star on on Mexican TV, uh, late night pay channels. Uh, and I'm here for it, and I want to see a copy of it on Blu-ray. Again, at the Johnny C. Hit me up. Uh, Horace, is, is compliant with helping Hogan in a beatdown. They control the ring, does the Hogan family. Here comes Tori Wilson. Horace makes eye contact. Hits Hogan with the chair. 
promptly covers Hogan, and Kidman and the Filthy Animals and Bischoff all run back into the ring, no longer feeling the effects of the chair shot, and they're all happy. One, two, three. They're jumping up and down, and the new blood has an official new member, all because of the sweet, sweet sexiness of Tori Wilson, which I cannot deny is a very real thing. Um, I also noticed that Horace Hogan has won a match, probably for the first time in uh, my viewing history, and he has really shitty theme music. This was awful, but when you combine it with the stupid ending and the awesome, hilarious Bischoff commentary, it's fantastic. I give it three and a half knocks on the door to make sure it's okay to come in. Because now that Horace is going through a very special time that all boys go through, you better knock just that extra time. Uh, we go to commercial. We come back. Horace and Tori are leaving. They're walking to the limo. Kidman's chasing him down like, hey, guys, where are you going? That's my girlfriend. And Bischoff catches Kidman and holds him back and tells him to let them go and he'll explain everything. So is is Bischoff, like, selling? I mean, I don't, I don't mean to imply that they're, they're selling, but did he promise sexual favors to Horse Hogan in exchange for his loyalty? Sign me up for the new blood, folks. It's time for the final segment of the night. Before we get to it, a reminder that next week, Nitro will be on from 7 to 9. So there'll probably be less tiling buck. Could be a, I mean, not that you can improve much on this episode, but it could get even better if she's not around. Here comes the Russo family, Vince and David. Uh, Kevin Nash is watching on a tiny TV in the back. Someone get that man a larger TV. He's a large man. He needs a bigger screen. Here comes Ric Flair and his J.C. Penny finest. Hey, 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 how come he gets pyro and I don't, says Russo, now that he's got a headset on and he's commentating. Jarrett makes his entrance. Oh, but there's no time to comment on it because Flair meets him in the aisle. The bell rings, and here we go. The main event for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. Ric Flair cashes in his money-in-the-boot contract and defeats Jeff Jarrett to become 15 times the man. The match starts with typical brawling on the outside that's really, honestly, I'm fucking tired of at this point. However, they're in, like, the left-hand corner of the, of the outside. So if, the, if you're looking at the hard camera, they're to the left diagonal area, and they're fighting over there. And I noticed that Flair takes a chair from a female fan, all right? And this, but, but here's, the, here's the gimmick, though, guys. Here's the thing. This female fan is fucking excited to have contributed to the violence that Flair's about to, uh, you know, create. And she is hot for, for, for what she's seen. She is into Flair. They brawl over in her area. She kisses her hand and then touches Flair with it. And I'm enthralled by this burgeoning romance. And I got to be honest with you, she's not bad. And I hate saying that. Like, I'm not trying to, you know, place value on people by their appearance. But, I mean, if you're 2000 Ric Flair... Not Ric Flair, but if you're a year 2000 Ric Flair, you're definitely trying to, you know, find this woman after the show based on how excited she was. Uh, so Flair still near the – I'm just going to call her the sexy lady so we all know who I'm talking about. They're still uh, – they leave her area. Okay, they go back into the ring. The script calls for them to feud on the outside more, and Flair makes sure it's over by the sexy lady. Now, Jarrett is up against the railing getting chopped by Flair. And I'm noticing that next to the sexy lady – is an old lady, and she is appalled that Jarrett is, like, getting slapped in front of her and chopped and selling it and, like, sweating all over her. 
And then the woman who's with the old woman, yes, I've introduced a third woman, uh, touches Jarrett. And the old woman, like, grabs her hand immediately and looks absolutely uh, grossed out and perturbed that she touched a sports entertainer. Uh, I think she's worried that her companion is now infected with something and she might be at risk. This whole fan interaction shit is amazing and much better than the actual match. They get back into the, the ring and uh, Jared takes control. And the, I notice from the corner, uh, because you can see the sexy lady when Flair gets whipped into the ropes at one point, she is still hot. Uh, hot meaning turned on. Again, I'm not trying to value judgment her. Um, her breasts are hanging out of her. Sh- I mean, look, what, am I, what do you want from me? She's, she's, she's a cute lady with large breasts that are hanging out. And it's not important, but the narrative is that she's into Flair. And that's the only narrative I can hold on to for this match because it's, it's dull. Back in the ring, Jared gets the figure four. Flair gets to the ropes. Flair flop over the turnbuckle. Flair runs to the turnbuckle, climbs it, gets thrown off. We've seen it a thousand times. Jared picks him up, whips him into the ropes. And Flair, whoa, counters with a small package. One, two, three. Oh, my God, Tony. Fifteen times he's the man. The announcers lose their shit. Russo loses his ship by saying, holy shit. Jared immediately grabs his acoustic equalizer, takes out Little Nate. David and Vince come in and take out Ric Flair with the Statue of Liberty. Russo grabs the belt, the belt, the belt, and he's hightailing it the fuck out of here. But wouldn't you know, oh, and no, it's not Teen Wolf 2. It's Large Attractive, the Sex Executioner. Nash comes down the aisle, takes the belt from Russo. Pushes Russo aside like the garbage that Nash believes he is. Makes JJ eat the belt. And then in a decently famous spot, Jared, ja- oh, Jared. Nash jackknifes Jared in a gimmick corner of the ring. And Jared kind of goes through the mat, puts a hole in the ring. Uh, you've seen it before. I know you have. Nash has got the strap. But what's he going to do with it? Ugh, you know what? It's cool. I don't need it tonight. Uh, I already hooked up a lady friend, but Nate. There's a sexy lady there in the corner who's looking to make it with a 15-time champ. So here you go. Nash politely hands Flair the strap in a show of respect. I'm giving the athletes one star. I'm giving the old lady who fears infection one star. And I'm giving the sexy lady one star for a total of three unearned stars. Cut to the back, and Bischoff is on the phone with a stranger, and he tells him that him and Russo... We'll be there. Don't worry. He hangs up, tells Shane Douglas that him and Russo are going to be gone on Wednesday for an important meeting, and you're in charge of Thunder as we lay our scene. Folks, that brings this episode of WCW Monday Nitro to a conclusion with a brand new heavyweight champion of the world. Now, I had said earlier in a hypothesis of mine that this might end up being, when all is said and done, the best episode of Nitro that WCW Must Die has covered. I can tell you now that we're at the end, it runs away with that title with flying colors. I don't know if it's better than the classic episode of Thunder where Arquette wins the title. It's pretty fucking close. Up until this point, at least in my viewing habits, and just to remind everybody here at the end, if you haven't figured it out yet, I like to have, you know, this is a show about having a good time, all right? 
my star rankings are entertainment based okay uh i've said it a thousand times i will say it one more aj and nakamura can get five stars just as easily as tammy and paisley can get five stars as long as you entertain me i'm entertainment and you earn stars based on that so between awesome sketches hilarious commentary Amazing Sid, fucking softball shirts, just everything. That goddamn House of Pain match way back at the beginning. The closed captions, uh, the hardcore, the hard, the hardcore title match where the filthy animals spend most of the time hurting themselves with the chair. The five star cruiserweight classic. I, oof. The David Arquette episode of Thunder, if I recall, I gave a nine. I don't give every show a ranking because I don't see the point, but I'm giving this a 9.3. I think that puts it in the lead of every show that we've absolutely covered. Guys, thanks so much for joining me when I was flying solo. Hopefully you're not as sick as me as I am of myself. Uh, check out everything on North-South, as I mentioned. Check out Pete's Place to Be, the Jenny Position. Check out some of my other stuff that drops on Sundays when there isn't a pay-per-view to review. Check out Johnny C and the Multiverse of Fabulousness. Get yourself uh, some pro wrestling uh, audio plays, you know. Uh, listen to a bullshit story I made up about Hulk Hogan turning three, turning heel and joining a stable with uh, Doink the Clown, Jerry Lawler, and Owen Hart to take uh, to run roughshod of the WWF from the years of WrestleMania 9 to WrestleMania 11. Uh, check out the episode where I created a TV show called WWE University and put the stars of the Attitude Era in an 80s college movie against one another. There's just so much fun to be had here at the North-South Connection Podcast Network. I just hope that whatever you're doing brings you as much joy as we have bringing this content to you. Have a pleasant today, and don't wrestle with tomorrow. See the peace in every eye.